I would like to ask you guys to turn in your Bibles to Ruth 3, verses 7 through 11, and I would like to invite Stephanie Alvarez up to do our scripture reading. Good morning. Ruth 3, 7 through 11. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Amen. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet met. And I'm doing well because you're here. And uh, I just let you in a little secret. For pastors in the Pacific Northwest, there are two things that cause us great anxiety. Uh, Number one, Seahawks games that are scheduled on Sunday mornings. Uh, and then waking up to just beautiful, gorgeous sunshine on a Sunday morning. And the little fear that comes up in our hearts is, will anybody show up at church? And so thank you for loving Jesus and indirectly loving me as well by being here. So really glad that you're here. We as a church, uh, we've been going through the book of Judges together since the beginning of the year. And uh, we are pushing pause on Judges to look at the book of Ruth The book of Ruth happens during the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, to be honest, it's a pretty bleak book. It's a very pessimistic outlook. Uh, It it says over and over again, there was no king in Israel. Everyone is just doing what's right in their own eyes. And so the stories often have a very downward trajectory. However, the book of Ruth, by contrast, shows us that behind the scenes, God was at work. And God was preparing a king for his people through the family line of this woman, Ruth, and through her to-be-husband, Boaz. And so we're going to look today at really uh, the the relationship of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, They kind of have the, uh, what do you call it, the DTR talk, right? The define the relationship. They've been kind of looking, they've been kind of talking, oh, pass the grain, oh, have some wine. And today they're going to just, all right, we need to do this, okay? So uh, it's, it's going to get romancy up in here, all right? So let's, let's, before we do anything else, we need to pray, and you need to pray for me, so we stay close to the scriptures. Let's do this. God, we ask and pray today that you would uh, show us wonderful things in your word, God, we don't just want some good ideas. We don't just want some information. We don't just want some inspiration. God, we want to encounter the living God. We want to encounter you through the words that you've inspired to be written. God, I ask and I pray for myself as I do each week that you'd guard my lips, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. God, I pray for each and every one of us. Would you give us soft, uh, receptive, teachable hearts? And God, even what's more, I ask and pray, God, that you would captivate and enthrall us with your love. God, as, as many of us face uh, trials, difficulties, things that weary us out, God, I pray today would just be refreshing, that we would be refreshed by your love, um, just the, the amazing love that every great romance points us to, the romance between Christ and his church. And so I ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. So I'll just tell you this. You know, we, we love a good romance. We love a good romantic story. I think everyone does. It's what, you know, Hollywood makes its, you know, entire existence off of. And when we were planning out this sermon series, we were planning it out to do Judges and Ruth uh, clear back in October. And I'm going to be honest with you. Ruth was a little bit of an afterthought. Let's do Judges. Maybe we'll pause and do Ruth and then we'll kind of get back to Judges and finish it up. And I did not realize that in God's providence, I did not plan this, we did not plan this, that I would get to preach on this subject of romance and relationship and marriage on the weekend of my 16th wedding anniversary. And so, yeah, praise God for 16 years of faithfulness. Now, we also dated for all four years of high school before that. So we've officially been a couple for 20 years. And I actually brought photographic evidence of the two of us in high school. Throw that first one up there, would you please? Uh, this is us. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is the late 90s, okay? You know, the... <laughs> you sh- Cameron, you watch it, buddy. The, Justin Timberlake was very popular and... 
but Jennifer Aniston was too. And that's like the exact shirt that she actually wore in an episode of Friends. So you had, you had relevant style, babe. I love it. We got married after, right out of high school. You can throw that next photo up there. We got married right out of high school. And, uh, but, you know, our marriage has not been perfect, but by God's grace, it is one of the deepest sources of joy for me. I hope and pray for my wife as well. And we are thankful to be a testimony of God's grace. And uh, also speaking of romantic, I'm not particularly romantic. I'm not, I've never been the like, you know, uh, come up with these crazy good ideas and all of a sudden, you know, there's like a limousine pulling up or that kind of stuff. I had friends like that around this era, but, but it was never my forte. I stumbled across something this week that just broke my heart. Uh, and I want to share it with you. Uh, this was a story. It made its way into multiple different news organizations. And it's from an Instagram post from a, a girl who we don't know her name, but she's hanging out with a guy named Daniel. And so go ahead and throw that next one up there if you would. This is what the post says. From Top Golf, which is like adult Chuck E. Cheese, to dinner, flowers, ice cream, and horseback riding, you outdid yourself on this friend date, Daniel. You wanted to set a standard for how I should be treated, and you sure set a high one. I thank God so much that he put an amazing friend like you in my life. Thank you for making me feel like a true princess. And then the dagger to the heart, hashtag still single though. Oh my gosh. So that, that made the news because that guy, you guys familiar with the term friend zoned, right? Like he got friend zoned so, so hard. And we are all heartbroken because like this guy, like for crying out loud, like all of us, all of us men in the room were like, yikes, like we need to up our game, right? Like that guy is just one, I mean, horseback riding for crying out loud, like (laughs) horseback riding. We love a good romance. Our hearts are stirred by this picture of romance. And, And even though in many ways, our culture, Western culture, American culture, has placed romance at the highest possible value, even in what we would say an idolatrous value. We who are Christians should still love and rejoice in and celebrate a good romance, right? And, and what I want to share with you today is nothing that profound. It's nothing earth sh- you know, shaking. It's nothing that new or novel. It's a simple truth that we can sometimes get cold and callous to, and it's this. The greatest love stories in the world pale in comparison to God's love for us. And nowhere is that love revealed more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ. Nowhere do we see that love revealed more plainly than at the cross of Jesus. And so, again, it's one of those things. It's nothing that profound, super simple, but something that we forget, I believe, because of the things that happen in our lives. I, w- I want to say uh, real quickly, just story recap so you can remember where we've been. Ruth 1 and 2. There's a man named Elimelech. He and his wife Naomi, they had to move away from Israel. They moved to a country called Moab because there was a famine in the land. And they moved to Moab and, and they had their two sons. And the two sons each married women from Moab which according to God's law, they weren't supposed to do. The people of God were supposed to only marry those who worshiped the God of Israel. But these men married foreign women who didn't worship the God of Israel. This is the time of the judges. It's everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. But then all of the men, the dad and the two sons, they all die. And so the mom is left with two daughters-in-law. The one daughter-in-law decides to stay there in Moab, but Naomi and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, decide, well, they're going to move to Israel because they heard that there was food there. Ruth actually converts. She says, uh, more than just, I'm going to go live with you, she says, you know, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She, they need food, they need family, they need protection. It just so happens that Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz, just so happens. God's working behind, behind the scenes to bring them together. Boaz notices her. <clears throat> they she works in the field. He protects her. He provides for her. He sends her home with a, you know, 50-pound bag of grain to provide for her. You know, months and months worth of food and provision, just generosity. They had a meal together. He passed the grain directly to her. They're looking at each other. He says, why don't you come work in my fields for the whole rest of the harvest season? Don't, don't go somewhere else. You come work with me. And so there's this, this building, this tension building, but then it said at the end of chapter 2, Well, then the barley harvest and the wheat harvest just went on and it kind of just like, oh, well, months have gone by and Boaz hasn't done anything. Boaz, something something has kind of hit a little bit of a a standstill here. So that's where we find ourselves in the story today. But I want to share with you a little bit further backstory. Now, I've alluded to this in, in previous weeks, but it comes to the forefront here 
because of the way that the relationship between Ruth and Boaz goes down in chapter three, the author of the book of Ruth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually referring to a, a previous story that took place in the book of Genesis. It's the origin story of the people of Moab. When I say Moab, most of you, if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might think, yeah, one of the enemy countries, enemies of God's people, whatever. But maybe you've forgotten just how, um, well, shocking the origin story of Moab is. And so I'm going to share this with you. Uh, and I want you to hear what the people of Israel, what the first hearers of the book of Ruth would have heard every time they mentioned that Ruth is a Moabitess. Back in Judges chapter 9, we, we see a guy named Lot. Lot was kind of the, the, the boneheaded nephew of Abraham, Abraham the father of Israel. Lot was his boneheaded nephew, lived in Sodom and, and Gomorrah, and they, God judged those cities. His wife dies, so he and his daughters escape. It says in Genesis 19 that Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. <clears throat> and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. No, nobody wants to marry us, is what she's saying. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. In that culture, having the continuation of the offspring was incredibly important. But even to this day, people want to have children and want to see their family name and their family lineage carry on. But their plan is horrifying. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He is drunk. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring. And so they made their father drink wine that night. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know, again, did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name what? Moab. This is the origins of the people of Moab. So when you come across the book of Ruth and the author of Ruth says, oh yeah, Ruth was from the, the people of Moab, all of the people of Israel would have gone, ugh. This incestuous, immoral start to a people group that became a thorn in the side of the people of Israel for generations. Now I want you to know that story. I know that's uncomfortable and I know that's not like everyone's, you know, yay, feel good Bible story of the week. But I want you to see the way that in Ruth chapter 3, certain words are going to be used and certain shapes to the story are going to happen where it shows that God is working his redemptive purposes in Israel through a descendant of this awful situation. That's how good our God is. That's how redemptive our God is. So I want you to be aware of it, Sound City, as we go through this chapter. Ruth 3, starting back in verse uh, 1. Then Naomi the mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may, may be well with you? Okay, what is she doing? She's mother-in-lawing. Hey, let me get involved in your love life. You know, let me, it's just doing what they do. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? He's, you remember Boaz, you've been working with him? He's, he's in the family line. He's legally available to marry you. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So Naomi's got like her spies out there or something. She's, she knows what's happening. It's the end of the harvest. She knows that Boaz is going to be working late because it's the end of the, the harvest season. And when it's time to harvest, you just got to put in the work until the job is done. Verse three, wash therefore... And anoint yourself. That's, uh, that's put on perfume. Smell nice. And put on your cloak. Like, put on your nice... Like, fancy yourself up, girl. We got work to do. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. I think that Naomi knows that most men are in a better mood after they've had a good meal and, you know, maybe a beer or something. And she's giving her wise advice. Do I get any men from any of the men in, in, the, in the room? You're all too scared to him, man, aren't you? <laughs> but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, <laughs> like spy on him, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, 
All that you say I will do. Okay, what in the world is happening here? Do you, having read that passage in Genesis 19, do you already see some of the illusions here? Wait till he's eaten and drank, then sneak in, lay down with him. What might the, if, if you, again, if you didn't know the story, where's the fear starting to rise up? Oh, is this just going to be more of the same? Is this Moabite person doing what the Moabites have always done? The, the language here, by the way, it's a little blushworthy. Go uncover. Uh, it's a word that means to uncover something, but it often gets translated, if you, if you do a search of that Hebrew word, it often can be translated as nakedness. His feet, which can also mean like legs or lower part of the body. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the legs on a man, that's the symbol of strength. Like if a man's been doing his lunges and his back squats, like that's, that's where he gets his strength from. And then uh, lie down is the word for lie down. But again, almost, uh, well not always, but the vast majority of the time it can be translated to lie down with. As a matter of fact, go back to our passage in Genesis 19 when it said Lot's daughters lied down with their father. It's the same uh, Hebrew word, shakav. So the instructions are given, and we ought to be kind of blushing right now. Mother-in-law's telling Ruth to just go seduce Boaz in the middle of the night after he's worked a hard, long day? And to that I say, yeah, kind of. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went, so he kind of went off to a different place. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse 8, I love this. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. We're like, I don't know about you, I would feel the same way. I've never, I've never had this situation happen in my life, okay? But as a parent, I have had those situations where the middle of the night, one of the kids comes in and, and, and wakes you up. And I remember distinctly one time, Mackenzie, our oldest, she must have been like six, seven. She actually came and stood on the head of the bed and just leaned over me like this. And I, I'm like laying there and I just had that uncomfortable feeling like I'm being washed. I open my eyes and there's just like this vulture perched over me. It scared me to death. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Yeah, I, I dare say. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? You have to remember, it's dark. They don't have electric light. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. It's an interesting word that's used there. In chapter two, she used that word servant. And back in chapter two, the word servant um, was, was the more just traditional word for a servant, a bond servant, a slave, a worker, whatever type of translation you want to use. It just is a transactional relationship. I'm here to work for you. But here in chapter three, she uses a different, different word. It's a word for like a maidservant or a, a personal servant, or it's actually related to the word for like a young woman or a virgin. If you look in like the prophet Isaiah, where it says the virgin will conceive and, and give birth to a son, it's actually related to the same woman here, the same root word here. What she's saying is, I, I want to be here for you. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That word redeemer is a legal term that means that he has rights according to the law of the land as a, as a close enough related relative that he has rights to marry her, to actually purchase the land, to, to enter into a, a type of relationship that would provide her not only with provision but with family. But did you notice that line, spread your wings over your servant? Did you notice that? Why does that sound familiar? Remember last week in chapter 2? When she, she was talking with Boaz and, and Boaz praised this prayer of blessing over her. You guys remember that? Remember when he prayed? He said, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz prayed that God would cover Ruth with his wings. Ruth shows up in the middle of the night and uses his own prayer against him. I love that. Hey, remember when you prayed that God would, you know, protect me, cover me? Would, would, would you actually do that? For you're my redeemer. By the way, you can marry me, and I'm your servant. Here I am. Like, this is so forward. This is so, like, this is, the, this is basically as close to the girl proposing to the guy as you're going to see uh, anywhere. 
what's Boaz going to do? What's going to happen? Is he going to freak out? You crazy girl. Is, are they going to, you know, do like in the movies? They're going to enter into a, you know, a love scene and the camera pans to black. What's going to happen? Verse 10, he prays for her. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after the young men. It, it seems like Boaz is, is maybe a little bit older. He's been an established business. You know, he's been, he's been building his barley business or whatever he's been doing. So he's a little bit older. Ruth's a little bit younger, but she's also a widow. He says, you've not run after these younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Is that beautiful or what? He wakes up. I mean, this is, it's kind of the analogy that, that came to my mind. It's, you know, it's a busy season. He's, it's the middle of the harvest. He stays late at work. He kind of falls asleep in his office, as it were, right? Any of you ever had that? Op- you know, don't have to raise your hand, but you ever worked long, long hours? And it's like, you know, maybe, you know, tax season for accountant or whatever, construction season in the summer. It's like, I'm just going to sleep in my truck. Or I'm just going to sleep in my office for a while. It's kind of like he's doing that. He's just going to sleep in his office. Ruth sneaks in in the middle of the night, wakes him up, says, hey, 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 do you want to marry me yet? And he's, what's happened? Oh, yeah, let me pray for you. This is a, this is a man of integrity. But then an obstacle arises. Verse 12, look what he says. Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet, yet, but, oh no, there's a snafu, there's a snag, there's an obstacle, yet there is another redeemer nearer than I. Boaz is saying, hey, you don't realize there's, there's like a, a kind of a chain, there's like an order that things, things are supposed to happen in. And there's somebody who's actually got first rights of refusal, as it were. This is not good. So he says, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Um, I would just like to take this opportunity to point out in the Bible, there's a difference between what we call descriptive text and prescriptive text. A descriptive text is something that happened. It just describes what happened. A prescriptive text is, you should do this thing. I would like to put the, hey, just spend the night with me and we'll snuggle here on the heap of barley until morning. I'd like to put that in the descriptive text category for all of you uh, dating or engaged couples. Uh, just a little tip. Um, I'm, I'm going to show you this more in a minute here, but there is, it's so beautiful because, again, with that backstory of Moab, we're expecting immorality, are we not? And yet here there's nothing but honoring of God, God's laws, God's wishes, God's commands for his people, even though this is a little, it's a little, it's pushing the envelope. Wouldn't you agree? Remain tonight. We'll work this out in the morning. Just lie back down. So she lay at his feet, verse 14, until the morning, <laughs> but arose before one could recognize another. So God up, it's still dark. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Like, hey, let's keep this between us. I want to protect your reputation. I actually think there's something really honorable there. Small town. We know already people were talking. Verse 15. And he said, bring out the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Uh, doing some digging, it's hard to know exactly what six measures mean, but a lot of the commentators believe that it's more than the barley he gave to her that we saw in chapter two. Uh, One number said it's a pretty safe estimate that this is about 75 pounds worth of grain that he loaded up in a sack and then just threw on her back and she like Samson with the gates of the city just went trudging off. These are both strong people. Why did he do that? Verse 16, we get a little bit more information. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? I'm like, Ruth, like, you see the 75-pound sack of grain I'm carrying? I went well, okay. Uh, how did you fare? Then, then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, oh, here's some new information we didn't get. What did Boaz say? He said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Pause for a minute. Why does that sound familiar? Remember Ruth chapter one? 
Naomi, she left. She went to Moab. She lost her husband, her sons. She lost her money, her possessions. She came back. You remember what she said? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21 of chapter one, she says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty-handed. And here God is using Boaz to minister his grace to Naomi and say, no, Naomi, bitterness doesn't get the last word. Empty-handedness doesn't get the last word. God is using this man, Boaz, a, a godly man, a providing man to take care of not just Ruth, but the mother-in-law, Naomi, as well, and to providentially minister grace to her heart. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 18, <clears throat> she replied, oh, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Oh, he said that? Oh, he did that? Oh, he's on it. You sit back and watch, girl. He's gonna take care of it. And that's where our chapter ends this week. What's gonna happen? How's the matter gonna turn out? Come back for the dramatic conclusion. Week four. Now, I wanna say something here. I wanna share a few just reflections on the nature of romance from this chapter. Again, none of these things that I'm going to say are incredibly profound or, or novel or new, but are simple and important, I think, important reminders for us as the people of God. And I also want to say that as I speak about romance and as I speak about marriage for the next few moments, I want to just explicitly speak to those of you who are here today who are not married. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of the people in our church are married. We have an emerging nation in our children's ministry back there, okay? And it, it is often one of the lies of the enemy that he wants you to believe that you are somehow less important or less blessed or less complete than other people are because of the fact that you're not married. And I just want to say, confidently, boldly, hopefully lovingly, that nothing could be further than the truth, that you are loved, that you are valuable, that you are complete in Christ every single bit as much as your married brothers and sisters are. And whether you are single and not yet married, whether you are divorced or even whether you are widowed, you are loved by God and you are not less than anyone else in this church community or elsewhere. Can you hear me on that today? And I want to say that clearly because, again, this is one of those places where the enemy wants to come in and bring discouragement, bring lies, and to get you to believe something about yourself that is just flatly untrue. The Apostle Paul, go read in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, hey, I wish that all of you could be married or un unmarried, single as I am, because you could devote yourselves all the time to God. He goes, those married people, he says, they have, quote, troubles in this world, is what he says. <laughs> and he says, I wish to spare you from them. He says, but people are going to do what they're going to do, so go ahead and get married if you want to. It's not sin. I just want to simply remind you that, that we, as married people, we need your wisdom and insight, and you have things that you can learn in and, and speak into on the subject of romance and dating and relationships and all that. And for those of you who are married, I just want to issue a challenge to you to be um, intentional. Don't become insular. Don't get focused just on your marriage or only hanging out with married friends, with, with young kids, that kind of a thing, but to be intentional to reach out to those friends who are unmarried so that you, A, so you don't grow insular, and B, so that they can know that they're a valuable part of not only our church community, but just your home, your family, etc. Can you hear that today, Sound City? That was totally a side note. It's free of charge, but as, as I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about romance, I just want to put it out there plainly and clearly so that we can all uh, walk in love together. Couple of things to say about romance. First thing I want to say about romance, it, it almost is so simple as to be no duh, but true romance, true romance is enthralling. Okay? True romance is enthralling. The, you know, I, I said this passage is a little blush worthy. You start talking about real romance, you know, you experience real romance, the heart rate literally goes up, your, your blood pressure literally goes up, your brain starts producing things like dopamine and serotonin, I think. I've read it on the internet, I don't know, but it's, it's enthralling, right? It's enthralling. And, and, and it's so simple as to be like a no-dub moment, but why do I say it? Well, because, first of all, sometimes in the church, we like to talk about how marriage 
marriage can be challenging and marriage can be work. And how many of you, as married people, you'd raise your hand and say, yeah, some of the greatest challenges in my life have come through my marriage. Raise your hand, be honest, okay? Some challenges, struggles. God's used your marriage to, to shape you, to grind off those rough edges. You have a front seat window into someone else's sin. They have a front row seat into all of your sin and all of your shortcomings. And we in the church can say like, yeah, and marriage is, is hard and God's gonna use it to shape you and God's gonna use it to make you holy. And we have these books with really encouraging titles like, what did you expect? And we're like, you know, we, I'm, that's seriously, that's one of the books we often give out to people in our pre-marriage stuff because we want you to have a realistic picture of marriage. With all of those caveats in place, with all of those asterisks in place, I would just simply like to remind you that true romance is enthralling and should be celebrated as such by, of all people, Christians. Just because Hollywood has overstated their case doesn't mean that we should overcorrect and yank the steering wheel into the equal and opposite ditch. Marriage is tough and it's gonna shape you and you're gonna become Christ-like and then one day you die, like, right? Like that's, that should not be the church's picture of what marriage is and what romance is. Ray Ortland, a pastor and author, uh, I've linked to this book up on our, our church's website under the sermon page. He says this, rather than quenched by dreary waves of monotonous daily life, Real love sweeps us away by its overwhelming power. Falling in love is a kind of temporary insanity. I mean, think back to when you were first dating, when you first noticed, right? Like, you were crazy. You were, a, you were, you were useless, okay? <laughs> Fortunately, in a healthy marriage, though we recover our right minds to some degree, the sweet craziness never completely leaves us. As the years roll by, a married couple inevitably suffers the buffetings of this life, but biblical marriage is resilient for many waters cannot quench love. True romance is enthralling, and rather than denigrating it, we the church should recapture, reclaim, and celebrate it for what it is, a gift from God. Number two, true romance is exclusive. True romance is exclusive. Did you notice how Boaz praised Ruth and thanked Ruth? He says, you have not run after the other young men. Uh, You know, a a young uh, widow moves back into town. Again, a small town, probably weren't many options for marriage eligible ladies. I I don't know, you know, who knows what the the situation was like in the town, but it seems like she would have had her her pick. She could have She could have run after some of the younger guys, but she knew that Boaz was a man of character. She knew that Boaz was a man of integrity, that he was a man who loved God. And so she kept herself for him. In in our culture, we've all but adopted this mentality that that the way you're going to find true romance is by trying, trying different people out. And that the longer you stay with someone, the more just monotonous it gets. And and then the way you're going to get that excitement again, that true romance, those butterflies, that heart rate elevated again, is by just kind of moving on. So this shows up in our culture just in the serial dating, just kind of moving from one relationship to the next to the next. This shows up in serial marriages. But even more and more now today, it's being presented as just normal, healthy, mainstream of um, the word, it's not even polygamy, it's polyamory. Not that you would make multiple marriage commitments, it's that you would just have kind of an open relationship that you could come and go as you please. You could have multiple sexual partners as you please. And this is the kind of stuff that's just presented as normal in our culture. This, is, this isn't, you know, the deep, dark crevices of the internet. This is mainstream news, mainstream publications. Oh yeah, more and more people are adopting a, a, an open relationship style, a polyamorous relationship style. I would simply submit to you that it's not only that the scripture teaches that there's ever-increasing joy to be found in the exclusive covenant of marriage, but that actually more and more in our culture, even secular people, non-Christian people, are realizing the emptiness of that promise. I stumbled across an article a few weeks back from the New York Times. It came out last year. The article is called, oh so optimistically, you will marry the wrong person. This is not a Christian author, so I'm going to quote from him, and I want you to just hear what he has to say, uh, because he's rejecting this premise of just finding the right person and finding this person that's going to finally make me happy. Listen to what he has to say. This is a guy named Alan DeBotten. I've also linked to this up on the church website. He says, we mustn't abandon him or her, 
only the founding romantic ideas upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based the last 250 years. Namely, that a perfect being exists who can meet all our needs and satisfy our every yearning. We, it's the, as, you know, I, I like to joke with it, it's the you complete me theology, right? What movie is that even from? Is that Ghost? Oh, thank you. You guys you need to read your Bible more. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ghost is the one with the clay and that, right? Okay. That's weird. What was I saying? Okay. We need to, we need to reject that idea that there's this perfect being that's going to complete us, meet every one of our needs. We need to swap out the romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us, and we will, without any malice, do the same to them. <laughs> there can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. That was that pessimism I was talking about. But none of it is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. <laughs> okay, okay. So he's a little sour. He's a little dour, right? Right, preach? Yeah. But the point stands that even among those who are not professing Christians, they would say, yeah, we're, we're seeing this fall apart of like, oh, I got to find this perfect person that completes me. Oh, it's not them. Try the next person. No, the Bible would say that true romance, deepening romance uh, 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 comes by committing yourself Say, I don't know how we're going to get through this next struggle together. I don't know how we're going to get through this next challenge together. But by God's grace, and with a little bit of just clenched teeth and holding on to each other's hands, we're going to get through it, and we're going to see greater joy on the other side than we've experienced in the past. Some of you have been married for 20, 30, 40 years. I was talking to one couple out front who's greeting. They're coming up on 48 years of marriage. And they have shared with me some of the different trials and challenges and struggles they've gone through in their lives. And I see them walking up. They're still holding hands after almost 50 years. Praise Jesus for that. Amen? That's good. That is a testimony of the goodness of God and the, the lie that our culture has bought into of just this, well, you've got to keep trying until you find that one perfect person. You will marry the wrong person because you're going to marry a sinner. And guess what? Your poor spouse, they married the wrong person too because you're a piece of work too, right? <laughs> Moving on. Point number three is this. True romance focuses on the goodness of the other. Drawing back a little bit onto Ruth uh, chapter two and throughout chapter three, have you seen the way that Ruth and Boaz speak of each other? Do you see the way that they praise the other? Boaz, you know, blessed are you, and you're this, this, this great woman. And she's like, what have I ever done to deserve such graciousness from you? She didn't come in with that attitude of entitlement. And, and he comes in and he, you know, he praises you. I've, I've heard of your care for your mother-in-law, Naomi, and how you left your, your homeland. And she comes and says, hey, I just I want to serve you. I want to be, be your servant. I want to love you and care for you in that way. Like they, he prays for her. He blesses her. I mean, just the language consistently throughout the book of Ruth is just praising and, 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 and encouraging one another. Now, this is, pr this is not the, um, the totality of their relationship. I'm sure there were days later on, uh, you know, where when they had strife or hard words with each other. But this picture that's presented is one to be imitated, one to learn from, is that they use their words to build one another up. There was a pastor I served with at my church in Alaska. His name was David. He and his wife, Linda, and they were both in their 60s, been married, I think, somewhere in that 40, 45-year range. And he said something to me and Aaron Lynn pretty early on, because like they, they were just like the cutest, most adorable, you know, older couple. You guys ever known those kind of couples? Just like, well, how did you get there? What did you do? And he said something to me. He goes, you know, pretty early on, I realized I had a choice. I was either going to focus on my needs and her shortcomings or her needs and my shortcomings. Well, which one did you choose? No, I knew which one he chose. <laughs> And he said, you know, it's not, that, it's not that you can't ever point out to someone if, they, if there's sin or if there's wrongdoing, but just as a general posture of his heart, a general attitude, says, I'm going to focus on my own shortcomings. And I'm going to choose to focus on her wants and needs and the ways that I can bless her and serve her and the things that are good about her. It's like Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just or pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is actually true for all of our relationships. This does not just apply to the romantic relationship. This applies to the parent-child relationship. This can apply to the coworker relationship, the friend, the person in your community group. Whatever the relational context is, this is actually incredibly important because if all you're focused on is what you want and what you need and they're, the ways that they're falling short, you are going to be incredibly frustrated and the relationship will suffer. But if you have that posture, that attitude, generally speaking, that I want to praise them anywhere that I can and encourage them anywhere that I can, things are going to go better for you. And when I say praise and encourage, I literally mean with your words. Some of you, especially some of you men, you you, you are not good with your words. No one is asking you to be Bill Shakespeare. No one is asking you to be, you know, John Lennon or whatever. But, but you can open your mouth and you can say, hey, I admire this about you or I appreciate this about you or when you do this or when you say this, I just, I love that about you. Men, some of you men really need to be challenged to open your mouth and to speak words of life. And again, it's true for all sorts of relational contexts. I experienced this when I was a music teacher before uh, serving in vocational ministry. I'd have a kid come in and they play a song for you and, and, and just thinking like, okay, there are 211 things wrong with what they just did. But my teacher training was such that you could not give any instruction until you had praised at least one thing. And I would, sometimes it was hard. Like, hey, I really like the way you just, stayed sitting in your chair the whole time that you <laughs> massacred that song or whatever, you, right? But you give that praise, you give that encouragement, and then that actually builds them up and they're open and they're more receptive to hear, hey, and by the way, can I, okay, we need to like not butcher the greatest songs of all time or whatever. <laughs> I want to encourage you, men and women alike, use your words to build others up, particularly in the marriage relationship where it can be so easy to use your words to tear another down. Speak life. The book of, uh, of Proverbs says that there is the power of life and death in the tongue. That you, you can build someone up or tear someone down with your words. Let's learn from the example of Boaz and Ruth. Number four, true romance involves restraint. <clears throat> Again, culture, our culture tells us that true romance involves the casting off of all restraint. The doing of whatever you want. The giving full vent to your passions, desires, and urges. But Boaz and Ruth... Well, they spent the night together, yes. But there's not a hint of sexual immorality in this passage. I would submit to you, he calls Ruth a worthy woman. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night. He prays for her. I'm, I'm going to submit to you that there wasn't a lot of like hanky-panky going on that night when he leads out with prayer. And the Bible's pretty honest. Would you agree? Like, remember, do I need to go back and read Genesis 19 again? Like, the Bible is not shy about telling us when, when there are things that are happening. Here, Boaz and Ruth, they exercise restraint. They know that God has said that sexual intimacy is to be reserved for the marriage relationship. They exercise a, a type of self-restraint, a Holy Spirit wrought self-restraint, so that they could walk in purity. Contra the example of Lot and his daughters— there's no restraint. There's no restraint with alcohol. There was no restraint with the sexual relationship. Here, there's restraint. And I, again, I just want to submit to you, you know, most all of you Americans grew up in the United States of America. Our very nation is founded upon the value of throwing off restraint. You can't tell me what to do don't tread on me, the right to bear arms, the, the, you know, literally we went to war because they were taxing our tea too much. Like, think about that. Like, no, we don't want to pay that much taxes on tea. I'm going to shoot somebody. Like, I've never had that thought cross my mind. But it's the, it's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. Our whole culture is built around the idea of casting off restraint. And I would submit to you that there is such a thing as a good and healthy type of restraint that gives us the freedom, the true freedom, to actually express ourselves. True freedom is not found in the throwing off of all restraint. True freedom is found in operating according to the way that God has designed us to operate. 
Just as you wouldn't drive your car into the ocean because it wasn't designed to work that way, so too our bodies were not meant for sexual immorality, but to be pure before God and to enjoy that type of relationship within the context of committed covenantal marriage. Now, I'd also say to you that there's no one here today who comes before God having walked these paths perfectly. No one here today has, has said, could stand saying, I've never, I've never sinned with sex. I've never done anything immoral. I've never had lustful thoughts. I've never had lustful intentions. None of that applies to me, which is why we all need God's grace. Amen? Which is my fifth and final point, that true romance points us to the gospel. True romance, true love points us to the gospel. As we're reading through the book of Ruth, these first few chapters, uh, notice this word kept coming up every chapter at a critical moment. The word in the, in the Hebrew is chesed. And I don't want this to be some theology or, or, or you know, word study lecture, but I do want you to be familiar with this word. If you're a, a Bible Christian, the word chesed is one of the most important words in the entire Bible. And it's a word that's really hard to translate into English. If you, if you look throughout the pages of the scripture, sometimes it gets translated as love, sometimes as kindness, sometimes loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, favor, covenant keeping, loyalty. All these different words get used to try to translate this one word, chesed. It's a big word. It's like if you took all of those passionate feelings about love and you mush it together with some just rock solid faithfulness and loyalty, like you can't, you can't shake me, you can't get rid of me. It's like all of that kind of mashed together times a hundred. We saw it in Ruth chapter one when Naomi is praying for her two daughters-in-law. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. She prays, may the Lord show you his chesed is what the prayer is. In Ruth chapter two, Naomi prays for Boaz. She's praying for Boaz. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord because he has shown kindness and not forsaken the living or the dead. So Boaz has shown chesed love. And just this chapter, Boaz prays over Ruth. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this last chesed greater than the first. So the Lord shows chesed Boaz shows chesed. Ruth shows chesed. This is the type of love that we are all yearning for in the depths of our being. It's why for thousands upon thousands of years of human civilization, we keep writing love songs. We keep writing romantic poems. We keep telling stories about the boy meets the girl and they they come together in love. Our hearts were made for chesed, faithful, loyal love. And apart from God, we seek it in all sorts of unsatisfying and unfulfilling places. But in God himself is where we truly find what our hearts desire. There's a passage in Psalm 36 where where the psalmist writes about this love, this steadfast love of the Lord. It extends to the heavens. God, your faithfulness extends to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your chesed, your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do you remember when Ruth laid down at the feet of Boaz? What did she ask him? Will you cover me with your wings? Boaz prayed, would God cover you with his wings? She prayed, Boaz, will you cover me with your wings? That expression is one of a a loving care, a protective loving care. Friends, what we often seek out in a romantic partner at the ultimate level we are supposed to find in God himself. That love, that covering, that, that spreading of his wings to know that you're safe, to know that you're loved, to know that you will not be rejected, to know that you will not be abandoned. Wherever we see that in other human relationships, whether it's marriage or friendship, parent to a child, wherever we see it in other human relationships, it's but a pale picture of what we have in our God. Amen? And how do we know this? Because of the cross of Jesus. The, the, the famous verse in Ephesians chapter five where it says, husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So here's the type of love that we're looking for. This is, this is the way that Christ has loved us. The romance between God and his people, between Christ and the church, is that he gave himself up for us. Friends, the cross of Jesus, where Jesus died and bled so that we might be forgiven of our sins, is the ultimate expression of God's love. We cannot be Christians and talk about the love of God without it being grounded in the cross. If all that God's love is, is some sort of sentimental feeling, you can go find that anywhere else. As Christians, our picture of the love of God is found in the cross, is it not? That Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything to be our redeemer, to purchase us back from sin and death, to sacrifice himself, to lay down his life. Boaz paid a redemption price of of some grain. Jesus paid with his own blood. And you can know that you are loved because nothing can move the cross of Jesus. Some days you're going to wake up and you're going to feel really good about life. The sun is shining. You and your spouse are getting along. You read some really encouraging verses in like, you know, Philippians or something. And God just really loves me. Other days, other days the sun is not shining. Your job is miserable. You and your spouse are fighting and you just got done reading something in Leviticus about some thing with mold and you're just really bummed out, right? (laughs) How do I know that God loves me? You look at the cross of Jesus. Nothing can move the cross. Your good days can't move the cross. Your bad days can't move the cross. If we are Christians, we know that we are loved because Jesus died for us to be our redeemer. I would simply uh, ask you, those of you who are married, where, where do you need to reinvest in your marriage? This picture from, from Boaz and Ruth. Where, where is God calling you to, to invest in a, in a new level in your marriage? And, it, and it's not just for your own satisfaction, although I think there's great joy to be had in that, but it's ultimately so that you can glorify God. So that your marriage could serve as a picture, a little tiny picture of that great marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. For those of you who are not yet married and you desire to be married, how are you preparing yourself for that day when it comes? For those of you for whom marriage is a real place of pain and difficulty, our hearts break with you. My my prayer is that God would surround you with loving brothers and sisters who can be empathetic and supportive of you and that you would know that at the ultimate level, while that may be very painful and very difficult, you would know at the ultimate level You have the perfect love of your heavenly father. As Romans says, nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing, not a single thing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this story. We thank thank you for the beautiful simplicity that's present in this story. God, we thank you for this idea of romance. And God, I ask and pray that we as the church would not be fearful uh, just because culture has dealt so wrongly with romance and the, the, the passion of, of romantic love. God, may we not shy away from it. May we not denigrate it. May we reclaim it as a gift from you and something to be celebrated within the church and to be safeguarded by your grace. God, I ask and pray for my friends here today. Every, every single one of us is in a different place in life. God, some have been married for many years and are reflecting back. God, some are just getting started. Um, God, others are are not married and wondering if that's something that you have for them. God, wherever we are, I pray that you would remind us of our completeness in you, that we don't need another person to make us complete, that God, we have everything we could ever have hoped for in you. And thank you that the cross stands forever as a permanent testimony to your love for us, your sacrificial redemptive love. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen.